You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Curious fact, did you know that 65% of Muslims and 62% of Hindus are men? But on the other end of the spectrum of world religions, 35% of Jehovah's Witnesses are men. From that spectrum of Jehovah's Witnesses to Muslims and Hindus, on the range of the percentages of men versus women, The question is, where does evangelical Christianity sit? Well, for evangelical Protestants, 45% of the church, according to the Pew Research Center, are men. Now, my interest this morning is not in percentages, though those are intriguing. My interests are in the composition of the percentages, specifically the makeup of those men. Not how many men versus women, but of the men present, what is making up the men of our evangelical churches? What are their default ways of acting, their default ways of thinking? Where are they coming from? What has been, prior to their time in the church, their primary source of influence, their primary examples set before them, perhaps not explicitly taught, but implicitly caught that they have learned without them even realizing that they have been repeating themselves, almost as if on autopilot, as has been modeled for them, so they now do themselves. For the purposes of today's lesson to you as men, I want to consider what are some common defaults and where men come from before life in the local church. How were you thinking? Where were you living? who was influencing you, what were your instincts like, and how those align with what actually the vision is put before us from the Word of God as to what the Christian life is like. Not unique to men, also true to women, but particularly by way of application, the example set by men. And that's by my focus this morning where I want to give my attention. There has been an infusion of problems for men coming into the church. As they come in from the world, Some of you have not come from Christian families. That's not been your upbringing. You are the first person in your family, perhaps still today, maybe the only person in your family who professes faith in Christ. So you have no previous sort of Christianized influence to draw from that you would sort of point to as an influential factor in your life. Others of you perhaps have come from Christian families, but if we can say it in a spirit of honesty and yet graciousness, The examples that you saw from perhaps mom and or dad or both were not the best. They were not intrinsically immoral. They were not flagrantly ungodly, but they were more just blase-faire. They were more just vanilla. They were not dynamic. They were not intentional. And certainly perhaps for those with fathers who were Christians, maybe not modeling biblical masculinity. 
As a result of that, many men today are floundering without clear examples to point to in their past that they could learn from and desire to imitate. Still, regardless of the background, perhaps even of good Christian background, with good fathers, some are still struggling with what we refer to by sociologists as failure to launch. This idea of delayed adolescence, where you have young men who are not teenagers, they're not being asked the question as 16-year-olds, what do you want to be when you grow up? They have, in some sense, physically grown up. They are seemingly by the pubescent indicators of, of manhood with their bodies having changed, with their opportunities having changed. They nevertheless still demonstrate perpetual immaturity, a delayed maturity overall. And yet some, perhaps not having failed to launch, perhaps not having come from bad or non-functioning Christian families, perhaps some understandably, like some of you, are just learning the basics of Christian life. It's not that you're not an adult man. It's not that you're not coming from good families. You're just still growing as a Christian man yourself. And that would be seen in ranging anything from having the regular discipline of reading the Bible regularly. You have a copy. It's more than just what's on your phone as if it's an Instagram feed for the day. You actually have a copy, but it's not been read that much. It's not been underlined that much. You're not quite sure when the pastor says to turn to a particular book exactly where that book is outside of maybe the table of contents. And it's something you're still learning to be familiar with. You value it principally. You know there's good things in it. You have been affected by what you've read, but it's still rather unfamiliar to you. Or maybe it's not the reading of Scripture. Maybe it's just actually praying. Prayer is still more of a 911 exercise. It's more of a AAA with heaven. When you get in a jam and you need to get a spiritual flat, you call the big guy, he will show up and he will help you in that moment of need. But after that, you largely kind of go about the highways of society, living your own way until you get in a jam again. Perhaps you might actually pray a little bit more, interact a little bit more, but after about 30 seconds to 60 seconds, you're not quite sure what to say. In so much as you've been aware of your needs, you've made those known to God. You maybe shouted out a few words of thanks for something that you maybe just ate or about to eat. Other than that, prayer would not necessarily be known as being consistent and persistent and in any way pervasive throughout your life. You look at past like First Thessalonians 4 and it says to pray without ceasing. You're like, that just sounds weird. I might sort of be like a Christianized Buddhist monk, always sort of moaning and humming and sort of offering conversation to God, but how am I supposed to do the rest of my life? Or perhaps it's not learning just to read the Bible regularly or praying consistently. Perhaps it's learning to give sacrificially. Money, for the first time you have it, you're like my teenage boys. Your first big paycheck and how excited you are. And it's all yours. And of course, then you learn to realize that little part gets taken out by the government. You're like, who are these people taking my money? I've not even met them. How rude is that? That feels like robbery. You're like, well, welcome to taxes and adulthood. That comes with that. But once you finally got it, the last thing you're just thinking about giving away because you've worked hard. You've either worked with that education you got, you worked with that job you had, through that boss you had to put up with, those employees that you had to cover for, their laziness, the point is you finally got it, and honestly, it's hard to give it away, unless, of course, it's on things you've been looking forward to buying, like AirPod Pros. Who doesn't need a copy of that? That makes life better all the time. A subscription to Netflix, you have to relax. That seems appropriate. 
You're going to eat out. I mean, who expected us to be a gourmet chef sitting at home, like chopping up fresh vegetables? So we should be supplying, of course, a regular diet of drive-through service to ourselves. But at the end, if we have anything, well, we might, you know, help out around here with a few pennies in the coffer, a few dollars to our pastors, or a few things that we can maybe supply. But other than that, I wish I could give more. But honestly, I got vacation coming up in a couple months, and I'm excited to get there. I can't do both. Besides, God owns it all anyway, right? He doesn't need me. And so men are not necessarily known for giving sacrificially. They give maybe erratically, maybe romantically, but not consistently and not giving sacrificially. There's other things to give to. There's romantic opportunities. There's wells to be dug in Africa. There's people to send to faraway countries in South America. But the local church, honestly, that seems brick and mortar. And how exciting can that possibly be? Missing, of course, all of the resources provided for you in the moment all the time. Perhaps it's not just the reading of the Bible or the praying consistently or the giving sacrificially. It is instead what we're going to get to today, serving consistently. Yeah, you might show up early at park day and you might offer to stay a little bit extra afterwards and pick up the goals and you might be willing to run and get some ice or help set up the water bottles or place the cones. And honestly, thank you for that so that one of us doesn't have to do everything for everyone. But that feels more like a cameo than it does a consistent display. A little moment of servant-heartedness, which we can tell our moms and dads about, instead of a consistent calling. Spiritual immaturity is not unique to men. It is not necessarily sinful all the time, though at times it is. Think of Paul writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 3, when he says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready. Well, the question is, why were the Corinthians at this time not ready? Is it just appropriately so? Is it just like, hey, you can't expect all Christians to be mature when they become Christians. That seems like a fair position. But that's actually not what Paul's concern here is because he goes on in verse 3 and says, why? Just because you were young in the faith? No, but because, quote, you are still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, you are not of the flesh behaving only in this human way. In a moment of transparency on behalf of the elders of Grace Church, sometimes we have said comically and at other times frustratingly, we sometimes feel like the baseline for Christian maturity of men is two things. And we start there as a baseline. Number one, keep your hand in the Bible as long as you can. Like actually like read it and know it and mark it. Number one, keep your hand in the Bible. Like no sound doctrine, no false doctrine, know what is good and right and true. But number two, keep your hand out of your pants. Keep your hand out of your pants. If, if you could keep your hand in the Bible as long as possible and keep your hand out of your pants, honestly, you would be mature by a lot of standards of Christian maturity. And then we can just speak candidly here as men. That would be a baseline expectation. And as your elders were like, well, I mean, are they, how are they doing in the Word? And how are they doing kind of keeping their hand out of their pants? Because we've even thought about, we should have made t-shirts for this. We thought that might be a bit much. Might be a bit much. But you understand what I'm talking about. We understand amongst men the, the lust of the flesh. Sometimes we are like teenagers who have yet still never grown up. 
We look and we act accordingly. How do we think? My goal today, while there are lots of ways to call men to maturity, I want to talk to you this morning about servanthood. I want to cast in front of you a biblical vision of Christ-like servant-heartedness that is life-changing, life-impacting, and gospel-testifying. My hope is that many of you casting this bait in front of you will bite it and run with it very far. I'm confident when I do this, that I'm doing this for different reasons, all of which are endorsed by God. Number one, my goal is pastoral in aim. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and 29, his desire is to present everyone mature in Christ. So the goal of Christian maturity is not just like an elective, like an option, like, hey, for those of you who kind of want to PR in the Christian life, here's an option for you. This is instead just sort of setting out, what, not what is radical Christianity, just, just normal Christianity, and just sort of putting out in front of us, as I myself, as Paul says himself in Philippians, want to press on towards the upward goal of God in Christ Jesus. My goal is also tied to the fruit of your salvation. The fruit of your salvation. May I remind all of us what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, after this expose of salvation, verses 1 to 9, he says in verse 10, that you would, be, that you would walk in the works that God had prepared beforehand, that you should walk in them. There is a correlation to conversion and subsequent works that we're walking in. My goal is also modeled by your Savior. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life away as a ransom for many. My goal is also powered by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, and what he says later on in verse 20, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead has been given to you as a pledge of your inheritance in Christ. So there is like a sure confidence that this is not an appeal to the flesh. Now, as a side note to you this morning, my lesson today focuses on Christians serving Christians, particularly in the context of their local church. At another time, I can address the value of Christians being servant-hearted in the world at large, as a display of their love for God and therefore their love for neighbor. But for our purposes this morning, I mean to apply it to Christians in the context of the church serving other Christians. Now, in light of that, here is the bulk of what I want to share and then some ideas to follow. Five lessons about Christian service that I want to teach you this morning. Five lessons. And you want to get these lessons because you're going to be asked later to talk about which one of these five hits you most. I'm going to grab a hold of, kind of write your initials next to. Number one, Christian service testifies to your conversion. Christian service testifies to your conversion. I want to just read to a familiar passage, if you've been with us for any length of time, on Sunday evenings in the, in the Grace Church, uh, Matthew chapter 8 is the story of Jesus just being the miracle worker savior that he is, Matthew chapter 8, verse 14, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. Now this idea of sickness, as Matthew's representing, she's about to die. Verse 15, he touched her hand and the fever left her 
she rose and began to serve him. It's worth noting that her name is not mentioned, her condition and the results of the cure are. We simply know the association. It's Peter's mother-in-law. It's interesting to note, if you will, how many times the Bible does give us names. Uh, names that we seem like, do we need to know that name? I don't know. We seem like we did in the, in the special Holy Spirit. Her name is never given here, but what is given is her condition is one of sick with fever, is this idea of death. And it says specifically here this idea of that he touched her and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. Her condition and then the results of the cure, her response is to serve. Friends, this is not just a commendable desire for an industrious woman like maybe your abuela who gets up and does something nice for the family. This is a normative expression of what happens when Christians have been transformed by the gospel. They think it's the most instinctive, natural response. In response to what Christ has done to them and saving them, they get up and serve him. So the idea of serving is like a normative exercise. It is like as natural to a Christian as breathing is to a human. It's like what you do. It's like how you interact. And so this idea is that Christian service testifies to your conversion. There is a corresponding relationship. And flipping it around, you could say that your conversion is illustrated and testified to by your service. So there is a connection here. Second lesson about Christian service I want to teach you is that Christian service builds up the body of Christ. Christian service builds up the body of Christ. Another familiar reference I just gave a few minutes ago, referencing earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, but later on in the book, in 1 Corinthians, a book we studied in the fall of 2020, in our community groups, we studied through 1 Corinthians. So for some of you, this will be a review. Others of you, this will be an introduction. Paul, later on in this letter to the Corinthians, speaks about the differing gifts that they have. And he says in chapter 12, verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. And so he spends a great deal of time in this letter to the Corinthians, explain to them different gifts, how to interact with them, why they exist. In the middle of that, in chapter 13, he talks about the heart of the gift, not just the display of the gift. And he says, if you have those displays, but you, don't, you miss the heart of the gift, that idea of love, then all this is in vain. It's just, like, it's just like a waste. And that's what 1 Corinthians 13 talks about, this idea about everything being done in love. But it's in that context, he says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12, so with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. The goal in any and every action that a Christian takes in serving is not to bring attention to themselves. In fact, that very approach was the very thing that Paul was correcting in a very direct apostolic way. It had become a bit of a spiritual gift talent show where they were sort of like valuing what they were offering versus what other people were offering. Sort of these public gifts versus these private gifts and which would take more prominence. A classic example of spiritual immaturity is that you are thinking about what other people are thinking about what you are doing. You are valuing 
it, and you're wondering if others' value is matching it. I uh, remember in my previous pastorate speaking to a uh, person who was serving in the church, and because they had made a self-assessment of the value that they offered as being great and did not find that my corresponding assessment matched theirs, they were not only disappointed, uh, but they became rather aggressive that I needed to represent my value of theirs by using them and commending them more commonly publicly. And while I certainly wanted to listen to the opportunities that I could maybe learn if I had not commended them appropriately and encouraged them accordingly, but if I was indeed identifying with them or identifying for them that they were really interested in this not for the building up of the body, but for the building up of themselves, and that everybody else was sort of a supporting actor in this sort of grand narrative of the drama of their life, the, the giftedness of their life, then, then they had wrongly understood what this was all about. And so they finally came to a point where they said, unless you allow me to serve this way publicly, I will not come to this church. It's not an uncommon story, particularly when people come from other churches that were recognized in certain ways, sort of finding their identity associated with their area of service, complete misunderstanding of why these things even exist. I'd like to tell you that there's a happily ever after story, end of the story, but the truth is there's not. Perhaps there's today, thinking the best of them, but in the season of time that we were together, they left the church. Kind of a way that a temper tantrum would happen. Another person I spoke to prior to me even coming to pastor there, I was told that a person didn't feel valued and appreciated, and so because of that, they left the church, and I was asked to bring them back to their place of prominent service, believing that because I was now the pastor, they might like being there. And I said, you're basically asking me to reward an adult behaving like a child who's had a temper tantrum that because they didn't get what they wanted, they instead of throwing down on the floor and flopping around the grocery like some young children do, which is at least more honest as to what's happening, they then left the church. And you want me to sort of reward that and say, I'm so sorry, you weren't kind of pat on the back, you should come back. I said, I will not do that. So would you at least meet with them? And I said, I would meet with them. And so i glad to meet with them to do two things. Number one, evangelize them if they weren't in Christ. Or number two, call them back to the joy of knowing and serving the Lord. To which this person responded to me, do you know how many years I've only served in this way in this time according to this purpose? Never the way you're describing. I said, and therein lies the problem, my friend. This has become all about the idolatry of self, not the building up of the body for the glory of Jesus Christ. Christian service is motivated by a desire to build up the body of Christ. I was encouraged by a recent attender of Grace Church who's only been here for a couple of weeks and she said to me she could not wait to commit to the church because she wanted to be able to serve the people by getting to know them, by knowing them more, she could serve accordingly. This reminds me of that idea of blowing some uh, air on some small embers of a fire that cause them to brighten and spread as more oxygen is given to them. This is what happens with service. And this is not something for 
just the Christians while the pastors sit in their ivory towers and sort of command from afar, may I remind you back in the same letter, 1 Corinthians, what Paul is saying as there's these divisions in the church, these sort of you know, factions, factionalism that's taking place, Apollos and Cephas, and he's talking about Paul, and he says, hey, is Christ divided? And later on in chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? And he says this, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. The leaders themselves are servants. No, no green rooms being spoken of here in the New Testament. third lesson about Christian service is that Christian service testifies to a love for others. Christian service testifies to a love for others. Jesus said in John 13 verses 34 and 35 that we should love one another. I want you to listen to what John Gill, a pastor from the 1700s, said about this. Listen to what John Gill says. As brethren in the same family children of the same father, and fellow disciples with each other, by keeping and agreeing together, by praying one for another, bearing one another's burdens, forbearing and forgiving one another, admonishing each other, and building up one another in faith and holiness. This is how we love one another. But as he then comments on Jesus' next words in the text, as I have loved you, so you should also love one another, Gil continues, quote, than which nothing can or should more strongly engage to it as Christ has loved his people freely, notwithstanding all their unworthiness and ungratefulness, so should they love one another. Through, excuse me, though there may be many things in them observable which are disagreeable, as Christ loves all his children without any distinction, so should they love one another whether poor or rich, weaker or stronger, lesser or greater believers, as, as Christ loves them, not in word only, but in deed and in truth. So should they love one another with a pure heart fervently, and here's what he says, and by love serve one another. This is why I think of Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 8, where Paul would tell the Philippian church, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, he says in verse 2, complete my joy, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. So he's talking about this connection about agreeing in Christ, the same love, the same way of thinking. And he says this in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. All right, pop quiz. How did you engage when you walked into the room this morning and how you view other people here? Did you think about others being more important than you present and did you come perhaps prayerfully or at least thoughtfully, how can I serve those around me? Is that a default way of thinking? Am I considering others more important than myself? Paul goes on to say to the Philippians, look not only to his own interests, Paul assumes you're going to look to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, mic drop, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. 
So we see here this understanding of a connection of your love for each other seen by your desire to serve one another. Model the example set by Christ. Fourth lesson about Christian service is that Christian service flips the world's values upside down. Christian service flips the world's values upside down. Now, I referenced earlier to you the example of Christ in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You're like, okay, that just might be kind of like a Jesus thing. Like, that's what saviors do. Like, that's what the Son of God does. And since we're obviously not him, that's actually not how we interact. Like, thank you, Jesus. We are benefiting from that, your work on the cross. But the context of that statement in which he says this, I want to back up and read to you so you can actually kind of understand that statement in its context, because it has tremendous application to you and I. Mark chapter 10, in the context of that statement, it says in verse 35, James and John, so two of his disciples, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, referring to Jesus, and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Verse 41, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Here's the key, verse 43 and 45. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you, must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Then, he says in verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, the reason I make this statement here, number four, about Christian service flips the world's values upside down is because Jesus is basically taking the world, Gentiles lording themselves over others, sort of being the overlords, if you will, and he's saying, hey, actually, in the Christian way of thinking, kind of in that Sermon on the Mount way, actually, it's the exact opposite. It actually flips it around, that, that I'm actually interested in other people, not wanting other people to be interested in me. That I actually have a desire to serve. Now, just to kind of put bumper guards here around maybe the perversest of hearts, which we can all be tempted to, Jesus is not saying kind of like in a reverse psychology, like, okay, this is my way to be great, to act like I'm a big servant. That'll be exposed if you keep drawing attention to everything you've done. Admittedly, I've done this as a husband of my wife. Really wanted her to appreciate me as a husband, making sure she doesn't miss it at times. Sensing that she might, I 
have done her the favor, drawing her attention to kind of set her up verbally with a few words of appreciation to a few things that maybe I've done that she's missed. Don't know if you knew this, but while you're out today, I went ahead and washed the sheets and made the bed and picked up the house and cleaned a few things up. And what a great husband I am. In fact, I've already written your lines on a three-by-five card. If you'd like to just repeat them after me, that'd be great. It's not been that bad, but it's been almost that bad. It's been almost that bad. James and John want to be recognized as being great. Jesus, you're great. We want to ride the bandwagon to greatness. And Jesus is like, the bandwagon you're trying to get on is going the opposite direction there I'm going. I'm going to the cross to die. You're trying to grow to the throne to rule. If you want to rule, we head to the cross. This is what Jesus would say as we know in our text. Whoever wants to be my disciple must pick up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. A life of service is a life of denying of self. And you can only maintain this so long in the flesh before you get exposed. We'll speak more about that in a few minutes. Number five, a lesson about Christian service. Christian service tells people about the glory of God. Christian service tells people about the glory of God. Everyone has a role to play in the church. Every part is important. Some ways are public, some are private. All of the ways are essential. Both for the building up of the body and for the story that they're telling. 1 Peter chapter 4. Paul, talking to these Christians who, by the way, have seemingly have got a voucher to like get out of a service opportunity, and yet Peter doesn't think so. They're being persecuted. They've been run out of their towns. They're not living in their houses. They've been separated from family and friends. Peter's still exhorting them, wanting to remind them of what it means to walk as holy as sojourners. In the context as he's talking about these things, to give it a little bit of a, of a backdrop story here, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, he says, the end of all things is at hand. Like, listen, we're, we're living in these end days. Therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Okay, there we go. Earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. You're going to keep sinning, but, but keep loving each other. You're going to have to overcome some of that sin with love. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. That's, that can, that's a kind of important qualification. Sometimes like, okay, you can come over. Oh, and you grumble about it. And then here's our text for our purposes this morning, verses 10 and 11. Talking about serving now. As each has received a gift, he's talking about spiritual gifts. He's basically saying all Christians are charismatics in that they've received spiritual gifts. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So the, the object of the service is one another. And then he kind of breaks down the gift into two categories. Verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God, like you're teaching the word of God. So do so soberly, carefully, diligently, prayerfully, responsibly. And then the second category, whoever serves. 
speaking gifts, serving gifts, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So verse 10, all of these are general serving areas, breaking down into two categories, speaking gifts, public gifts, and serving gifts, so supporting gifts, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. It's not your strength. And then here's the kicker. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Does the local church like Grace Church need more people serving? Yes. Would it be good for your relationships with each other to serve each other more? Absolutely. We've been a, a visible display of your conversion that you actually have a new heart with new affections? Absolutely. Would it help audit why you do what you do as far as exposing in time maybe bad motives versus good motives? I guarantee that'll be true. Will it build up and strengthen a larger story than just your individual story, but the larger story of God with these converted, congregated sinners together who are now redeemed, being transformed with the power of the gospel, for sure. All of this to tell the ultimate story of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. So we're not just telling our story individually, our story collectively, we're telling his story of the glory of God, as it says there, and that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, a little over a year ago, I sensed that I was having trouble seeing as I was reading. And so I thought, I need to actually go to the eye doctor. Now, you know, this was, this was a little humbling because I prided myself on having good vision. And the, the truth is, from a distance, I can see far. I have 2010 vision. So my wife and I will be in the car driving somewhere down the road, driving somewhere down the highway, and I will see signs that she can't see. And I forget that because sometimes I'm like, oh, try right up there. She's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I feel like, you know, like a miniature superhero, I can see far. But the problem was, is over time, as I was reading, I found myself just having trouble focusing on words up close. And so I was like, I think I need to go to the doctor and get my eyes checked out. And sure enough, he confirmed what I suspected, which is, yeah, you, you, you need some adjustments. You need some minor corrective lenses known as readers you don't have to wear all the time. You need them some of the time so that when you're particularly reading, you can see things more clearly. And when I got a pair, I was like, wow. Sometimes you've noticed me when I'm teaching and I don't have my glasses on, I'll reference a verse. And if I don't have my glasses on, I'm like, what verse is that? <laughs> okay. Otherwise, I'm like counting 18, 19, 20. I'm trying to do it really quickly in my head if you ever want to have a delay. Just look right now with me at verse 21. It's because I'm counting it down because I don't have my glasses to see the verse. It's so small in my Bible. I have friends, though. I think of one particular friend. His wife, her vision is so bad, she's actually legally blind. Uh, without her corrective lenses on, she has her difficulty making her way around the room. Friends, my hope today is to be like a good spiritual eye doctor to you. For some of you, it, it's, it, it's, just, it's a minor correction to be able to see things a little bit more clearly than you already have been seeing them. 
and acting accordingly. For others of you, it's a major corrective lens prescription needed. Where how you have been thinking, how you have been looking around the local church has been fundamentally different, where you have been missing things entirely, more sort of bumping around the room as opposed to seeing things clearly as to what is your role and responsibility as a part of the body of Christ. I do not want any one of us to default to becoming more of a consumer than a contributor. You do not want to default to just benefiting from and appreciating and receiving the service of others, but make little concerted effort to think about and act on how you can serve others. This is dangerous, not only because it creates entitlement and stunts your growth spiritually, but also gives a perverse picture of the fruit of the gospel and the lives of redeemed people. My hope is that the Word of God has provided for us this morning the clarity and the motivation to be mature by committing to serving, but now pastorally to be really helpful to kind of put something in front of you. With that in mind, let me give you some ideas of where to begin. I'm going to give you 10 ideas, but these are literally just the beginning of countless ideas. I'm going to go through them fairly quickly because my hope is for you to start grabbing some of them or let them be a catalyst for more ideas of your own. Number one, if you're a member of Grace Church, purpose to pray daily for your church and your fellow members using the provided daily prayer guide. Now, I won't ask by show of hands because I'm not sure I want to know the answer. But I wonder how many of you, even just this past week as it was uploaded, how many of you use the prayer guide that Kristen Perez, as an act of service, provides for the members of the church to pray through 31 daily requests of Grace Church. And then all of the members that you and I made a covenant commitment to, that we actually recite, and we'll say it again tomorrow night, that we made a commitment to, that we pray for those people's lives. And then, in addition to that, each, of those, each one of us, as members of the church, have identified at least two people in our life, different relationships, some are family, some are friends, some are coworkers, some are neighbors, that we have wanted to purposely pursue to evangelize. See, I think sometimes when we think about serving, we might think, okay, okay, are there chairs to like stack here? Are there like, are there like tables to put away? Certainly a place for that. We'll get to that in a second. But I'm talking about something as basic as like how you serve people without even having perhaps gotten out of your bed in the morning. I mean, you realize due to the, the, the gift of technology, we have uploaded it on your phone through the app. Like, you literally just like click on one app, you open it, you click on a group, you go to the resources, you click on Like, you're four clicks into every prayer request needed for the Church of Grace Church. Today, Karina De Leon and Janelle Fenton, the two members of Grace Church. How many have already here or how many will today serve Karina and Janelle by praying for the two of them? Man, that'd be powerful. Just that, just that one idea of how to serve each other, how to love each other. Flip that around for a second with me. Think about if everybody here as a covenant commitment member of this church was committed to praying for you. Oh, man, talk about wind in your sail. 
type of encouragement in your day. Wow, how humbling it would be on the receiving end of that. Now just imagine everybody catching that campaign and believing. That's just idea number one. How to serve here. Number two, show up early on Sundays and offer to pray for what is about to go down at 5 o'clock, or more specifically, 5.05. You say, what's about to go down? Friends, nothing less than spiritual warfare. If you think we're praying that microphones work, if you think we're praying that, like, songs, transitions go well, you, you, you're just, you, don't, you just don't see it. You don't know what's happening. You're, you're missing it. Everything is just praying that we're friendly to like visitors who are coming for the first time. You, you just still don't have the eyes to see you. you, you it's not just you need like, like minor. You're like, you need, you're, you're like spiritually blind. You can't see what's actually. We are doing spiritual warfare. Imagine showing up casually to the line of war with like a slingshot. Just, you know, I'm going to throw some rocks, expecting to accomplish anything. And then, then the problem comes. People don't show up to pray. If they show up to pray, they don't show up to pray that seriously. And, and you actually have to get people to pray. Like, Ronald, it, it's like sometimes painful. Like, okay, would anybody like to pray? Any, any, anybody want to intercede? Anybody want to grab a hold of God for us and not let go until God touches us and blesses us? And that we'll walk with a limp the rest of this night because of that person grabbing God. Instead, often what happens is we're too worried about what will you think about my prayers when I pray? What will if I don't say the right thing? Friends, that means you have an eye more on men than on God. You've forgotten the gospel. You're not captivated by it. It's not overwhelming to you. Too often, particularly for us, we have weak prayers of little faith, praying for at best first downs instead of touchdowns. Number three, stay late on Sundays. Offer to help shut things down, lights, doors, AC, signs, etc. You could make the mistake of thinking, oh, wait, I've learned Ernesto is in charge of a team of volunteers with people like John Glass and Josh Lane. They've got it covered. They've got it covered. So once I know that there's an area of service that someone's sort of been assigned to it, it's covered. Friends, that way of thinking would just slowly poke holes in the hole of the ship of Grace Church that moves from what can I do what are others doing for me? And once I know that they've got to cover them, it's okay. Number four, flip it around. Leave early enough from Grace Church on a Sunday to head to one of the places that we're going to be eating at that Travis has picked for us as an act of service of Travis's. To possibly clean and hold tables, gathering chairs, reading to get people to sit together, and always making sure as you are facilitating people, who is coming and sitting alone? I watched for three consecutive weeks a repeating visitor bravely come to dinner 
Sunday night after Sunday night after Sunday night, and no one, no one asked to sit with them or invite them to other people in conversation. Now, is that exceptional? I'm happy to say I think so. Not normal. But should we perhaps have other eyes? We're not just thinking about casually. Where are we going? What am I eating? Who am I sitting with? What's going down? But actually walk into space. I am here to serve. I am here to serve by the needs physically. I'm here to serve by the needs relationally. I'm here to serve by the needs conversationally. Who can I connect with? Who can I introduce to? How can I serve practically that I am seemingly setting a table for Christian fellowship? And ironically, it's not even my table. It's not even my place. I'm going to have to pay for the AC or the electrical. I don't have to give the food. It's like literally all done. Like my, my stuff is like the smallest of contribution, but if it's the smallest way I can contribute, I'm glad to do that. Number five, at every gathering of people, official and unofficial, look around and pursue people who you don't know or that you don't think know others that you do know. They're easy to spot. They're often by themselves. Don't let that happen. Ask them if you can sit with them. Interact with them in conversation. Ask them about their family. Ask them about where they're from. Ask them about their occupation. Ask them about their time. Ask them about just why they're there, how they heard. Number six, identify one person or a couple each week that you want to encourage. Send them a text or a Mail them a note. That would be pretty radical and rather old-fashioned of you, but you ought to try it sometime. You could blow people's mind. Actually, a handwritten note like that, it's a thing called a stamp. I'll have to teach you later what that actually looks like. Nevertheless, the opportunity to go on a campaign of 52 weeks of encouragement. You don't have to wait till January. You can just do it right now, you know, July. 52 weeks of encouragement where you are in your own mind identifying, maybe taking note of a person or a couple that you want to encourage. Number seven, identify parents in our church and offer for you or some, and someone else with you, so two of you going together, to come to their house and offer free babysitting so the couple can have a date night without the cost of additionally paying for a babysitter. Amen, says the dad. What a gift that is to couples who are trying to make it work in Miami financially and already have the high cost of living, let alone the prioritization of time to be together as a couple and invest in that marriage so they don't get out and their kids out of the house and they feel like they're just roommates and no longer a husband and wife who are married to one another and love each other. So they're prioritizing that romance, prioritizing the time together, but then to have somebody come over and offer to babysit for free. Now, the reason I say you plus somebody else is because that could just give sometimes a, a security comfort people like, okay, the chance of one of you being an idiot is maybe possible. The chance of both of you being it at the same time, probably less possible. I think my kids are going to be okay. So how can two people come over to their place and say, hey, can we offer free babysitting? And, and if you try to pay us off in some other way, we will refuse it. I just want to warn you ahead of time right now. We just want to love you. One of the greatest gifts that can be given to couples in the church is having other singles or other couples offer repeatedly to offer that kind of service to them. Number eight. Offer to pick up someone from the church on the way to church. I think about the opportunity to engage and care for people. 
We've been in conversation, as you know, my dear friend Mike is here with Miami Shores Baptist Church and the opportunity for us to come together as a church, and we've been praying about that and talking about that. Miami Shores, one of their strengths that they have amongst other strengths is that they have some super senior saints as far as how long they've been walking faithfully with the Lord, have a lot to teach, a lot of ways to sort of show that and be a model for that. Some of those saints are limited in their capacity to get around physically. Others of you are not. The opportunity to commit to picking them up and bringing them to church, if we're to be together in the future like that, or others here already, gives you an opportunity to just share together in conversation from that drive time there and that drive time back in ways you would not. It doesn't have to be because of age. It doesn't have to be because of a lack of mobility. It could just be because of the desire to want to be together, serving in that way. Number nine, think about every organized gathering that Grace Church is going to have. Sundays, community group gatherings, weekend Bible studies like here, Friday night special series, park day, work days, etc. Think about every possible organized gathering you have. Find the leaders of that gathering. Sometimes it's staff like me or Chris. Sometimes it's volunteers. And ask what you can do to help. Start with not only showing up on time as a statement of value and appreciation for what has been planned and prepared for you, but actually come early. Let me just read that sentence again because I think it could be missed. Start with not only showing up on time as a statement of value and appreciation for what has been planned and prepared for you, but actually come early. Showing up early and staying late to offer to help those who are setting up and tearing down. As a good illustration example of this, Bobby texted me yesterday, hey, I know tomorrow is men's Bible study. What can I do to help with that setup? I said, actually, it's probably a better question to text Chris Juday. Can you text him and ask the question? He said, I'm on it. And I arrived here at about 8.50. Sean, Bobby, Chris, myself. Chris had already been helped by Bobby. But as I'm writing things out, Bobby comes to me and says, anything else I can do? Can I, can I help you now? What a great encouragement that was to me. Did I give him a list of 10 things? And at that point, everything was sort of covered. But that type of attitude, like proactively thinking ahead of time, what's going to be happening? Where is it going to be happening? Who's in charge of it? How can I help? Number 10. When thinking about what to do with others, Hangs, group chat on WhatsApp, Grace Church app, other ways you're texting each other, interacting in your own connection points. Think about ways to serve others. In other words, don't just default to thinking activity-based time together, which is great. I, purposely, I personally love it as well. But also think about service-based time together. Many times that should be People in the church, single women, couples, unique needs or unique seasons. Sometimes it's people outside of the church. But think about organizing times where you get together to serve, not to just share an activity. Now, to be clear, at times in sharing the activity, you can then think about how I can serve those in the activity. So sometimes the activity is a way to see a way to serve other people. Here is my overall encouragement to all of you men. Open up your eyes and look around you. The opportunities are endless 
Sometimes the service is action, what you are doing for somebody. Sometimes it's conversation, what you are saying to somebody. Sometimes it is prayer, what you are interceding for on behalf of somebody. Sometimes it is proactive encouragement, what you're helping people to identify the evidences of God's grace in their life. It is endless as to the opportunities. Let me give you three cautions, and then we'll be done. Number one, be careful putting too much weight on self-assessment and interest in serving. Be careful putting too much weight on your own self-assessment and your own interest in serving. This happens sometimes in the church where you see people will serve based upon where they want to serve, where they self-assess they think they can serve, versus just asking, where is the need? In other words, if you're waiting to be comfortable, you're going to often miss opportunities to serve and opportunities to grow from that serving. Secondly, Recognize the balance between initiative and deference. And this is important, so let me tease this out for you because I don't want you to miss this. In serving, we value people who initiate. And I greatly do appreciate that. But sometimes initiative can mask pride instead of maturity. I assess the need and my ability and availability, and I will act accordingly. It's like, it's a good thing and a bad thing at the same time. Good thing is there's a need being met necessarily, proactively. The bad thing is sometimes that can actually mask their own pride in assessing when they're going to use themselves, how they're going to be used. I do what I see needs to be done. But the flip side, for those who don't initiate but defer, like, hey, let me know. Whenever you need something, you let me know. I am always here. I am like the guy on the bench waiting to be put in by the coach. Know that I'm here dressed and ready. The problem on that, on the flip side, is that sometimes that kind of deference can mask laziness instead of humility. When you say, I will do whatever's asked of me, I just hope you don't ask a lot of me. In fact, I'm even making you do something now for me by having to Stop and assess and consider where I can be best used. Recently, uh, Ronald and Chris are on a phone call with a guy talking about leadership and serving and deaconing in the church. And uh, he's a um, writer and pastor and about to go plant a church, and we're talking to him. And he said one of the challenges can be he has found is that as elders, when they've gone to somebody and said, hey, Derek, we would love for you to serve in this way. As elders, we've given this some thought, and we just want to encourage you. We, this is what we see in your character. And this is a need, and we think you're competent. Maybe not experienced, but we think that this is an area that, that you could serve in. And he says, one of the problems can be when Derek says, oh, you know what, I don't, I don't aspire to that. I don't, I don't think I would be very good at that. But thank you for thinking of me. Now, that can initially sound like humble. Doesn't aspire, 
Try not to be self-promoting. The problem is, he says, is that that person has basically said, I recognize the plurality of elders has just made an assessment of me and the need and has asked me to serve, but I believe my self-assessment transcends and is greater than their assessment, and I have accordingly decided I am actually not going to submit to the recommendation nor defer to it as being a legitimate need or believe that I actually can make a meaningful contribution, and so I will choose otherwise. Now, to that person's defense, I don't think that they're thinking all those detailed kinds of thoughts. But that implicitly sort of baked in the house sort of what can be wrong with that way of thinking. Now, sometimes it's immaturity, sometimes it can be ungodliness. And it was sort of an eye-opening conversation we're having about how that can be sort of crosswired there and how to balance out what are those needs and initiatives and how to serve. Lastly, as far as another caution, be sure to audit your heart on why you serve. Be sure to audit your heart on why you serve. Serve the Lord in whatever you do, regardless of whether anyone recognizes you. Otherwise, I promise, you will in time become bitter, resentful, and joyless. I've, I've become bitter, resentful, and joyless. When as a pastor, I have found my myself at times serving for the wrong reasons, for the wrong audience. And it happens to every Christian who is not careful as to why they do what they do. Encouragingly, God has already been answering the elders' prayers for Grace Church. Christ is being lifted up. The gospel is going on in power. Lives are being changed. The lost are coming to faith in Christ. The saved are being built up in Christ. Grace Church is being known for being a loving, welcoming, and inviting local church. The aroma of Christ is increasingly filling this church. That is awesome. God is answering prayers according to his word and his will in his people's lives. However, we're not done as elders praying for Grace Church. And we're not done working. I pray, particularly for you as the men of this church, that the culture of Grace Church would be undeniably soaked with Christian servant-heartedness that reflects our Savior. Let me be plain. Let me be clear. I'm trying to disciple every man who is here now, as well as listening to this recording later. I am inviting you to fulfill your calling as a Christian. I'm speaking of the joy of dying to yourself and living for Christ's glory. I'm calling you to show your love for Christ by your love for your brother and sister. I am calling you to a life of service. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.